turn to page 856 for Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thorns and, and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Aaron, if you want to come on up, we will pray for you. God, we thank you for Aaron. We thank you for the joy that, that he has any time that you're around talking anything from sermon text to the children he teaches during the week to football. We thank you that he finds all those pieces of heaven on this fallen, broken world and is a great just reminder to us of how um, you want us to be. God, we thank you for his preparation this week. We pray that we have just open hearts to hear how we too can um, find ways to see the joy and your grace and mercy and kindness and goodness in our world that we walk in now. We thank you for Jesus most of all. In your son's name, amen. <clears throat> amen. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Good morning, Karis. Merry Christmas to everyone. Um, as a kid, I can remember some of the regular Christmas traditions that I had growing up, uh, and many were centered around kind of the special music or the cantatas that we would have at the church that I grew up in, uh, and my mom was always one of the vocalists there. My mom is a classically trained soprano. Uh, she has an amazing voice. She studied music in college and was in uh, a traveling worship band, and uh, she's participated in or taught music at that church since before I was born. Uh, so at some point every December, uh, she has the opportunity to sing a solo uh, on Sunday morning, and usually, or at least for a long time, she's usually asked to sing the modern Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know? And if you never heard this song, it's kind of a series of questions uh, addressed to Jesus' mother, Mary. It asks, you know, Mary, did you know that your baby would be the Savior and the Deliverer? Mary, did you know that your baby would heal the blind and the lame? Mary, did you know that your baby is Lord of creation and would one day rule the nations? And other things like that. Mark Lowry explained his thoughts while writing the song. He said, I tried to put into words the unfathomable. I started thinking of the questions I would have for Mary if I were to sit down and have coffee with her. You know, what was it like raising God? What did you know? What didn't you know? Now, like most pieces of music and art, the song, Mary, Did You Know, is now without its criticism, theological or cultural. Every Advent, I always kind of look forward to uh, some of my snarkier Christian friends sharing posts on social media, you know, that are like, you know, Mary, did you know? And they're like, of course she knew, you know, the angel told her in Luke 1, 26 through 35. Like, okay, man, calm down. Uh, I read a blog post, one Australian author said that Mary, Did You Know is the most sexist and patronizing Christmas song there is, 
wondering whether we would ask Abraham 17 times if he knew that he would be the father of many nations, or whether David knew that he would be the king of Israel. I don't really have any comment on that. Uh, I think people are probably just like overthinking and underappreciating the song a little bit. But this year, uh, we're doing this Advent sermon series that we've called Christmas Music. Uh, and we're, we're looking at some of these poetic passages around the Advent stories or other psalms with Christmas themes. And so last week, we looked at Psalm chapter 40. This week, or the week before that, we looked at Zechariah's prophecy. And today, we'll read through Mary's song, which is here in Luke chapter 1. This passage is often called the Magnificat. That's the, the Latin term uh, for the word magnify right here in the beginning of our passage. And throughout the history of the church, this song has been regarded as one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. It's also one of the most quoted, especially around Advent season. And so, on top of that, I think there's also this unique need that we have to revisit this song, to let it wash over us this Christmas season. Right here in Columbia, Missouri, in the year 2023, um, this week, as we were thinking through the, the themes of Advent, uh, our, one of the themes for this week is joy. And on the surface, Christmas season is, is often one that we associate with joy. We sing songs with words and phrases like, joy to the world, merry and bright, jolly, wonderful Christmas time. And yeah, Christmas is all those things and, and more, right? Like, we see the bright lights, the smell of a fresh pine tree, we bite into a warm cookie, sip sweet hot chocolate, cozy up with a warm fire, uh, around a warm fire with our friends and family. And we remind ourselves of the Savior who came near to us on that first Christmas day. And yet, unfortunately, there's also times, the times that can bring us the greatest joy also uh, have sometimes the worst heartache hiding right around the corner. And you might be struggling to experience Christmas joy this season. Um, maybe this is the first Christmas that you'll be without a parent or a relative, or you know this could be the last Christmas that you get to spend with them. Maybe this is the first Christmas that um, you and your kids are not going to be in the same house. Maybe uh, they've grown up and got married. Maybe there's been divorce in your family for whatever reason. Um, your kids and you are, are not going to be able to be together this year. Um, Perhaps you're struggling financially, uh, and you don't know if you'll be able to afford all of the, the good things, the, the gifts and the food and the decorations, those things that you deeply desire to give to the people you love. Maybe every Christmas is just an annual reminder of the pain from previous years. You might be struggling to get to the end of 2023, only to be dreading having to do this all over again in 2024. Whatever your struggle is this morning, um, holiday hurt and anxiety can steal the joy that Jesus' arrival brings. And so if that's your experience this morning, then this song, Mary's song, is for you. You get to sing it too, whether you're able to belt it out loud or just hum along with it in your heart. Because Jesus' advent is actually the grounding of our Christmas joy. And on top of that, Jesus' advent brings with it the promise of reversal and justice and restoration for all of those holiday hurts we've experienced. So let's, 
let's get into it. By the time we join our main character here, Mary, uh, she's already received this good news from the angel Gabriel telling her that she's going to have a baby son. Now, uh, now she's pregnant. She visits her relative Elizabeth, who's an elderly priestly woman, uh, getting ready to have her own miraculous baby in old age, John the Baptist. Elizabeth expresses her joy upon hearing that Mary's son would, be, uh, would grow up to be who he would become, the Messiah. And it's Mary's response to that that we read in our passage today. So let's, let's jump in, verses 46 and 47. Mary starts out, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Uh, this is so great. I love this. To magnify something here, it means to increase it or to make it appear greater. So Mary says both to Elizabeth, but then also to us, if you thought God was small, I'm here to tell you that he's not. Now, as we already noted, like Elizabeth maybe doesn't necessarily need that reminder. She has already been blessed with this miraculous child in her old age. God had restored her reputation in the community, was going to use her in his plan of salvation. Yet Mary still says to her relative, he's even greater than you think. And so we go, we go through most of our days, most of our lives, probably having a, a lesser view of God than we ought to, don't we? Not that we think anything negatively about God, um, hopefully, but we kind of have this default setting built into us uh, where most of the time we're just like doing our own thing, and then when things start to kind of spiral out of control, we're like, okay, like I need, now I need God's help, you know. And so Mary, you know, here she takes our everyday view of God and holds it under a magnifying glass, sticks it under a microscope. She says, hey, let me make that bigger for you. Can I help make things clearer? That's what this song is all about. It's seeing with Mary the glory of God in greater clarity. And now we might be tempted to imagine Mary as a kind of handle with care character in the gospel narratives. A poor, young, rural, colonized, pregnant, and engaged girl swept up into God's big plan. May we imagine that you know, she's just kind of along for the ride, not necessarily an eager and active participant. Now, to be sure, she absolutely is a poor, young, rural, colonized, pregnant, and engaged girl. We know based on the temple sacrifices, two turtle doves, that she and Joseph were some of the poorer members of their community. Culturally, we can assume that she was probably somewhere in her mid-teenage years. And she's not from the big city or the capital, but she's from backwoods Galilee, under the thumb of the Roman Empire, on top of that, God has intentionally chosen for her to become pregnant before she's married. And especially in that day, in that context, in that culture, that is not something that can be overlooked. Given the circumstances that are kind of stacked against her, uh, you and I would probably shrink back if we were asked to do what she was asked to do. But not Mary, or at least not for very long. In the passages, in the passages that come before this one, we see her troubled and confused at the angel's initial message. But once she understands what is about to happen, we see her response. We read, uh, we read this and we talked about this last week in our Cars Kids classes. Uh, verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
And I love what uh, this one biblical scholar, Scott McKnight, has to say about this statement here from Mary. He says, Mary here is surrendering to God and all that God is about to do through her child. All of her dreams for herself and her people are about to be fulfilled. We don't need to read this as a tacit, pensive kind of surrender, but rather as an excited commitment, a radical surging forward, a let's roll, bring it on. Mary is ready to go toe-to-toe with Herod the Great and Caesar Augustus. Because if you're a young, poor, colonized, and stigmatized girl, and you're told that your baby is going to do all of the things that Mary sings about in her song, then there is nothing that could be more exhilarating for you. Some of the main themes that we see in Mary's song are joy and reversal and God's faithfulness. Mary experiences joy because she knows that God's faithfulness will bring about the reversal that characterizes his kingdom. And so as we read this, we can also ground our joy in those things too. Jesus' advent grounds our Christmas joy and promises reversal to the hurts that we've experienced. With that said, yeah, we should get into the meat of Mary's song. Verses 46 through 50. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. In this first half of the song, we get more of a, more of a personal perspective for Mary about what God is doing uh, for her in her life. And then in the second half, we get more of a zoomed out, you know, social, cosmic perspective in the back half. Uh, Here, we get to see the joy that Mary experiences. One thing that many of us may dread about the holidays uh, is having all this new stuff, all these new gifts. Um, Like, it's great to get gifts, but also, like, it can be a little anxiety-inducing now to bring them home and be like, okay, I gotta put these somewhere. I gotta store these. Um, a couple of years ago, you know, there was this woman who became really well-known on social media uh, named Marie Kondo. And she's a Japanese woman who is a master of organization and minimalism. Uh, you might think that's a, a weird career choice, a weird thing to like do as a profession. Uh, but Kondo grew up in the city of Osaka, Japan. Uh, Osaka has a population density of 12,000 people per square kilometer, which is twice the density of Tokyo and New York. When there's not that much space per person, it makes more sense to hire a professional organizer and minimalizer. But, you know, condo, this was kind of the, the thing that went viral. She had this simple system on how to judge whether an item should be kept or discarded. You hold it up and you ask yourself, does this spark joy? And if it does, you keep it. And if not, you throw it out. Maybe you have tried this in the last couple of years. It's not always easy to discern if something sparks joy every time. Uh, we live in a crowded, out, yet hyper-consumeristic culture. And so most of my belongings, um, they kind of spark ambivalence. It doesn't mean I don't care at all. It's just I have like positive and negative thoughts related to them. Like, yeah, sure, this gizmo is great and super helpful and fancy, but now I have to also clean it and store it and fix it if it breaks. As we read the first half of Mary's song, 
It's clear that the blessing and promises of God have sparked joy, and the sparks have become a blazing fire uh, that burns within her. You can almost hear the excitement in her voice in these first verses. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in the Lord. You can hear the astonishment that God would use a girl like her. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. All generations will call me blessed. You can hear the elation. The mighty, holy, merciful one has done great things for me. Karis, that same joy is available to you and me this Christmas season. We just have to know where to look. Mary points us. She holds that magnifying glass for us. Whether it's in the former or the latter half of this song, look down at your Bibles. Look at the beginning of every line. There's the source of her joy. He has looked. He has shown. He has brought down and exalted. He has filled and sent away. He helped and remembered. He spoke. It's what God has done, is doing, and will soon accomplish that sparks Mary's joy and can keep our joy aflame. The next theme that we see throughout Mary's song is that of reversal. These opening chapters of Luke, they're just full of reversals. Unexpected uh, twists. We look back in our Bibles. We do good biblical theology, and we look for themes that run through Scripture. Uh, These reversals, they culminate in the contents of the Magnificat, and then they also set the stage for all the reversals that are to come in Luke's Gospel. Like I mentioned uh, earlier in Luke chapter 1, we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth. Kevin preached Zechariah's prophecy a couple weeks ago. Um, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're an old, childless, priestly couple. That's supposed to you know, be a little alarm bell, take us back to another old, childless, priestly couple in the Old Testament, Abraham and Sarah. God tells Abraham, look, you're going to have a son, despite all odds, you know, it's impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a child. Uh, not for God, though. An angel tell, or, and, and Abraham trusts in God's promise. An angel comes along to Zechariah. He's in the temple, like, doing the priestly duties. Uh, an angel appears and says, hey, God says you're going to have a son. And Zechariah doubts God's promise. You think of all people that Zechariah the priest would remember his Old Testament and trust in God's promise, but he doesn't. Not only that, but then we flip to the very next story. An angel appears to Mary and tells her that she's going to have a son. And we've already talked about Mary's situation. And Mary believes with this eager anticipation. Mary is the one who's familiar with her Old Testament, with her Bible, And as she sings this song, she's drawing on the language, the images, the themes from other Old Testament women, Hannah, Miriam, Deborah. It's a reversal. The person that you'd expect to understand, they're totally lost. They don't get it. They doubt. And the person who you would not expect to get it is like, yeah, let's go. I'm ready to roll. Let's look at the reversal of which Mary sings in verses 51 through 53. She says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Man, so, you know, we got the rulers being thrown down. We got the rich being sent away empty. We get the humble exalted. The hungry are given good things. One scholar, Michael Bird, he jokes, are we reading Mary or Marx? Is this the Magnificat or the Manifesto? He's kidding. But God's kingdom is characterized by this kind of reversal and upheaval of which Mary sings. Remember what we said at the beginning. Uh, Mary lives in backwoods Galilee, territory occupied by the brutal Roman Empire. And if that wasn't bad enough, the puppet king, Herod the Great, that they have ruling over the area, he's like completely maniacal. Within a couple chapters, he's going to try to kill Mary's baby because he sees this tiny newborn infant as a threat to his throne. But God's promise of a Messiah, his chosen king, means that the tides are about to turn for God's oppressed people as well as the ones who've been oppressing them. Mary boasts in the strength that the Lord has revealed with his mighty arm. And her confidence is unmatched. Notice how she speaks. It's not he is showing strength with his arm. He will scatter the proud. He will bring down and exalt. It's he has done all those things. This is one of those cases, Paul loves to do this, where uh, the biblical writer or the speaker Their hope is so secured in God's promises that they can speak of what is yet to come as if it's already happened. Jesus has not even been born yet. If Mary had the Baby Center app on her phone, like she would know that the Messiah was like the size of an ear of corn at this point. And yet, whatever God promises, he accomplishes. If he tells you that you're going to give birth to the Messiah— then that means it's already too late for the world's wicked rulers. He has shown great strength with his arm. I've got a seven-month-old baby. And one of my favorite parts of the day, this is going to sound mean, but I promise it's not, is putting him to sleep at the end of the day. Not because I don't like spending time with him, but it's because, you know, feeding him dinner, giving him a bath, changing him into his jammies, getting him fed, rocking him to sleep, is just like, the sweetest thing. And our friends, the Bogles, they turned us on to uh, the Spotify playlist called Sleepy World. It's amazing. It's just like lo-fi lullaby music. And there's like nothing that will like calm James down and put him to sleep uh, faster. It's always within like three or four songs. Especially if one of us, uh, my wife Caitlin and I, are singing along with the lullabies. And I like to imagine that, you know, this wasn't the last time that Mary sang this song. Like, I hope that this was in her, like, regular rotation of lullabies when the seven-month-old Jesus was having trouble falling asleep. You know, rock-a-bye baby by the seashore. When Messiah comes, the mighty will fall. Or maybe Mary is, you know, bouncing the baby Jesus on her knee. She sings to him about how he will be God's servant to lift up the downtrodden. It should be no surprise to us then that when Jesus grows up and comes back home to preach, that he asks for the scroll of Isaiah and reads this to the people. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. For years growing up, I'm betting that Mary made sure her boy knew who God had called her to be. Church, we're able to find Christmas joy in spite of our hurts and anxieties because we know that when Jesus established God's kingdom, that was good news to the poor and the oppressed. Good news for the sick and the suffering. Good news for the depressed and the anxious. Jesus arrives to lift up those who are down low. Our final theme that we see in Mary's song is that of God's faithfulness. Let's look together at uh, verse 50 and then verses 54 and 55. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In verse 50, in the first half of Mary's song, Mary reaffirms for us that God will maintain his loyal love forever. It's, the, it's part of who he is. Each generation, those people who turn to him and trust in him will continue to receive his mercy. And remember again, God is so faithful that she is able to speak about what he has promised as if it's already happened. God has proven himself from generation to generation to be a promise maker and a promise keeper. Furthermore, God's faithfulness has a missional component to it as well. It starts as something that's kind of centralized, only to permeate out as his promises are fulfilled. God began to save his people centuries before he sent his son. It started with this promise to Abraham and his family. But those promises were always made with the intention of blessing all the nations. And you know what? You and I are evidence of God's faithfulness to his promises and his blessings. If I had to guess, many, if not most of us here this morning, are probably not Jewish. And yet, we have gathered here to worship Jesus from Nazareth, the Jewish Messiah. Because God has been faithful to his promises to bless the nations through Abraham's family. Not even just to bless the nations, but to bring the nations into his family through faith. That's what Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans. He says, that is why the promise depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. God is faithful to his people and his promises. He will not forget us. So Mary's song, it shows It shows us these Christmas themes of joy and reversal and faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Where do we go from here? How do we let this passage affect us and then live it out in our lives? I think maybe we can see three strategies that we can take both as individuals but then also as a a church community uh, to experience the joy that Mary herself does in this song. So first thing, we have to magnify God together. To magnify, be a magnifying community. As we were talking about this passage in the office this week, um, 
Hannah said something like magnify is not a word that we use very often. It's probably true. I think that's true. I think we do often magnify God when we get together, when we praise together, when we're uh, here on Sundays or in our MCs. But it would also help us to be more intentional about thinking of our worship and our praise like that. As noted already in Mary's song, to magnify means to make greater. Imagine, again, a microscope. We peek into the microscope, we see something that is regularly small, and we make it larger. But we can also think of a telescope. When we look through a telescope, we're looking at something that is gigantic. I'm thinking of, like, space, you know, uh, like a star. We're looking at something that's gigantic, but really far away. In that sense, to magnify would be to bring something that into focus by making it appear closer. What's that line from the movie Elf? The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. It's kind of true in some way, though it's not something special about, you know, the songs that we sing. Rather, it's the God to whom we sing and about whom we sing. When we worship, our goal is to increase the praise that God receives, to make his name and his glory known to ourselves and to all of those around us. That's the the microscope magnification. We can also lose joy when we feel like God is distant. That's where our worship creates also creates joy within us as a community with the telescope magnification. Our praises help us to remember and respond to a God who is not distant but close. That's part of what Christmas is all about. In the incarnation of Jesus, becoming a human baby, he is Emmanuel, God with us. When we worship and praise together, it's like we're passing around a telescope to each other, helping us to see God more clearly and more closely. Second, we can experience the joy of Christmas by being Christ-like subversives. Hear me out. God's kingdom is characterized by reversal And God is the one who shows the strength with his arm. God is the one who topples the wicked and raises up the lowly. But that doesn't mean that there's not a place for us to participate. Most of us probably have a negative connotation when we hear the word subversive. We probably think of like January 6th, a couple years ago. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, What does it look like for us to be Christ-like subversives? There's an irony, a reversal of sorts when I use a term like Christ-like subversive. Because simultaneously, a a Christian following after the way of Jesus is in no way a danger to their enemies in this world. And simultaneously, we're also the greatest threat to the evil empires in our world. We live as Christ-like subversives when we gut the power and the idols that are prevalent in our culture. Just think about some of the, like the negative cultural values that we often associate with Christmas or the holiday season. Maybe the biggest thing that comes to mind is like consumerism and excess. People can be selfish. You and me, we can be selfish. We'll spend a whole holiday weekend expressing our thankfulness for the blessings that we've 
experienced and received, and then we'll spend the whole next day trampling one another to get a good deal on a flat screen. But when we live generously, when we shift our focus from consumption and meeting our own needs to giving of our time, our talents, our treasures, then we subvert, we undercut the values of the empire that we live in, exposing the emptiness that endless consumption leads to. And there are any number of ways to to be a Christ-like subversive. We've been taking a break this Advent from our series in Matthew, but if you would like a laundry list of other ideas, I would suggest going back to Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, for more uh, concrete commands and ideas of how to live this out. When we act as a Christ-like subversive in our world, we participate in God's promise of reversal. Lastly, how do we live out or experience God's faithfulness? Well, I think we can do that by being a faithful and missional presence. So to those who uh, might feel on the, the fringes of our community and being missional to those who are not yet a part of our community, around the holidays, um, you know, students and singles, they may be more uh, prone to experiencing loneliness or feeling left out. It might be harder for some of our folks to get back home to family if they live in a different part of the country or a different part of the world even. So we can embody the faithful presence of God towards them by being a welcoming family of disciples throughout the holidays. Christmas is also a season when many folks are more open to having spiritual conversations or or visiting a church gathering, especially like on Christmas Eve when there's still a little bit, you know, of an element of cultural influence to attend a, a church service. We can continue to be a welcoming and hospitable body, reaching out and inviting in those who are in deep need of the Christmas joy that Jesus brings. Church, so many of us, we get enamored with Mary's song because of the the imagery in the middle, throwing down the mighty, exalting the lowly. It's radical, it's intense, it's vivid. At the end of the day, though, the reality is even greater than Mary could have imagined. At the beginning, I brought up that song, Mary, Did You Know? And wondering, like Mark Lowry did, you know, what did and what didn't she know? And Obviously, you know, she knew that uh, Jesus would be the Messiah, the Son of God, holy, with a never-ending kingdom, because the angel did say that to her, straight up. Obviously, she knew he would be merciful, would fill the hungry, would fulfill God's promises. That's what she sings about in our passage today. And all of those things are miraculous and incredible. But I think there's also probably some things that Mary didn't know. A mighty ruler toppler fits the mold of the Messiah that Mary and her people were expecting. But our Christ is the ultimate subversive. He undercuts the revolutionary violence that would have been expected of a Messiah. He undercuts the punishment our sin deserved by taking our place on his cross. He undercuts death itself, by willingly entering into it, only to have that be the means by which he defeats it.
It's the self-sacrificial love for his enemies that subverts the only power that wicked rulers ever possess, the power of death. It's Jesus who topples the rulers by allowing himself to be toppled, only to be raised up by his Father and set on top of all things. That's our gospel, Karis. That is the heart, the root, the grounding for our Christmas joy. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. Thank you for moving in the heart of your son's own mother, that she would be stirred up by your spirit to sing this song. God, I pray that it would sink deeply into our hearts this Christmas season, that even as you have already begun to fulfill so many of your promises in Jesus, we pray that we would continue to see them being fulfilled around us. God, I pray for this church this morning that they would feel the joy that Jesus brings them, that they too would shout out about your mercy and your faithfulness to anyone who would listen to them. Lord, as we continue to worship together around your table this morning, would you grant us unity by your spirit? Give us a deeper sense of union with your son, greater sense of unity with one another. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.